0: Good morning everyone. Hey, okay, so Michelansla used the illustration of being a sports fan and trying to tell others about how great your sports team is. Aren't you thankful that our job as Christians is not like being a Kaiser Chiefs fan? <laughs> hey There's uh we can actually tell people that our God is great and it is true. We don't have to try and convince them that our team is something special when they're not doing so well. No, um, our, our God, of course, is great and glorious, and uh, He is worthy of our complete and total praise. Um, a common opinion in the world today definitely Is that religion would be better if it was more bite sized, you know? If it was more manageable. If it wasn't so. didn't require so much of a commitment. If it didn't take up so much of your life. If it was something that you could just almost have like a small hobby on the side. And I don't know about you guys, but I find that sometimes. This opinion is so clear in the world that even when you're around people and you're interacting with people, you're just aware of the fact that you can very quickly come across as very weird if your commitment to Jesus, the level of your commitment to Jesus, comes across clearly. And it can be tempting sometimes to think, okay, let me, let me try and dilute this a little bit. Let me try and make it seem a little bit more normal. Let me uh, not look so strange in people's eyes. Because um, when we think about it, right, when we think about religious radicals, right, you think about that term, religious radicals, it's not good associations that come to mind, right? You think of terrorists and you think of... Um, cult people uh, making people drink funny juice and all sorts of weird stuff right but what I want to tell you very clearly and we'll see this very clearly as we study the book of Philippians in the weeks and months ahead is that there is no Christianity apart from all out radical Christianity um, but I want to tell you that that's not something to be embarrassed about Uh, it's not something you need to hide, it's not something you need to be uncomfortable about. In fact, what you'll see is that as we, as we look at the Christian, at the Christian truth and the Christian life, you'll see that nothing else would make sense, right? If this is true at all, it only makes sense that it would turn our lives upside down, that it would completely reorient us, that it would be something that Changes our priorities, changes our perspectives. Something that, you know, if it's if, if if we're going to give it any attention at all, it 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 has to be something that just demands our full commitment. And I want to show you also that that this level of commitment, rather than being something that would Rob us of joy is actually something that is the greatest source of joy and true joy, lasting joy and joy that, that overcomes even the most difficult of circumstances. Put simply, we could say this, Christianity calls for complete and total commitment and it is well worth it. It calls for complete and total commitment and it is well Worth it. We're going to start today, as already mentioned, going through the book of Philippians, and we're going to take a look at the whole book, section by section. And this approach to preaching is called expository preaching, and um, more specifically, when you work your way through a book section by section, as considered sequential exposition. Okay, sequential exposition. You. You, you move from one passage onto the next, onto the next, onto the next. And it has a number of benefits. So one of those benefits is it helps us to see the argument and message of an entire book of the Bible. Okay, We look closely at the argument and message of an individual section, but then that then also feeds into the next section, and the next section, and the next section. There's arguments being made section by section, but there's a greater argument to the whole book as well, and this helps us see that clearly. Another benefit is that it helps us understand each individual section that little bit better because we've already studied the parts that come before it, right? So we understand the context uh, of, of the verses that we're looking at better. A third benefit is that we see everything God wants us to see. Okay? So in a given week, we might actually be going through a section where the pastor might be thinking to himself, Hey, I don't know what I'm going to say <laughs> when he begins his study, right? Because he looks at these verses and there's nothing that jumps out at him from, that, from those verses and grabs his attention and says, This is worth preaching. But God knows better than we do what we need to hear, okay? And so there's a certain benefit to just preaching the next thing and trusting that there's something in this text that God has given us that He wants to communicate to us, even if I don't know the value of it before I begin studying it, okay? Lastly, a big benefit of this approach is that it teaches us how to be better readers of the Bible, because that's essentially what we'll be doing week after week. We're basically practicing together how to responsibly read the Bible. We're just reading a section of the book, keeping in mind its preceding context, thinking about what it means, and then thinking about how we should apply it to our lives. Sometimes people think more mystical approaches are the way to read the Bible, but that is not so. Right? Approaches like just opening up the Bible and reading a verse and, and expecting it to be like God speaking directly to you. Um, that's not the way God intends us to use the Bible. Rather, the Bible is, is, is written different different sections and different genres, right? So we've read from Psalms earlier today, which is basically poems or songs. Philippians is a letter, right? But these different sections, even though in different genres, as we read each particular genre, we read it just the way we would read a poem, just the way we would read a letter. And we understand it according to the same rules that we would approach a poem or a letter, ordinarily. It's as simple as the fact that we that the, the the truth is there in that text. We read it responsibly, understand the meaning, and then think about how we can apply it to our lives. And as simple as this is, God is supernaturally at work through this. He's supernaturally, he was supernaturally at work. Uh, through the writers of Scripture when they wrote these these various books of the Bible. And He's supernaturally at work, His Holy Spirit, helping us to understand uh, His truth and to be moved by it and changed by it. Okay, but We'll keep all this in mind as we study Philippians. As I mentioned, it's a letter and it should be read as a letter. And now, one of the things that we should realize with this, though, is that it wasn't a letter written directly to us, right? Um, It was a letter that it is a letter that God intends for us to learn and benefit from. But we need to keep in mind that it was written to particular, particular recipients during particular circumstances. And we need to start by thinking about what the God-inspired author of Philippians, it's the Apostle Paul, was saying to his original readers and how he was looking for them to apply what he wrote to them. Only then, once we've understood what he was saying to them and what he wanted them to, to do with what he was saying to them, can we properly understand how it should change our lives. Okay? How it can be applied by us today. So what I want us to do today as we begin our study of this book is we want to get an understanding of the background of this letter to help us make sense of it as we work our way through it. So we're just going to look at verses 1 through 2 today. Philippians chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. and It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So specifically today what we're going to look at is, is these four headings. Who is the letter from? Who is the letter to? What Were the circumstances of the letter? And then lastly, we're going to look at a gospel greeting, a gospel greeting. So first of all, who is this letter from? Well, verse one tells us it's from Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And many of us know at least a little bit about Paul. Uh, We've, we've at least heard the name, know he's important with Christianity. Uh, We might know that he's written several books in the New Testament. But let's spend some time, even if you know a fair amount about Paul, I want you to think about his life story afresh now. We first see Paul in the book of Acts. And as far as as Acts fits into the, the Bible story, basically Jesus has already died, he's already raised from the dead. He's already ascended to heaven. And Acts is now the story about how the the early church begins to spread. Okay? How the early church begins to spread. How the gospel advances. The good news about Jesus advances. And Jesus' followers are growing. And in the book of Acts, when we first see Paul, he's actually called Saul. He's a very committed Jew. He's part of a strict group called the Pharisees, and he's very, very strongly anti-Christian. He sees them as a threat to the truth. He sees them as heretical and false. At the end of Acts chapter 7, a committed Christian named Stephen has been passionately witnessing about Jesus to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a council of, of Jewish leaders. And they get angry with him And they take up rocks to stone him, okay? Now the way stoning would work, this isn't, don't just think golf ball-sized stones or even tennis ball-sized stones. Think more like, I've got to pick this up with two hands, and probably rather than throw it at you, I'm actually going to beat you over the head with it, okay? This was a a very violent, uh, way of, of punishing, killing somebody. and uh, so these, these, these people react to what Stephen is saying about Jesus. And they take up rocks to stone him. And, and Saul is there. And what he basically does is he basically takes the robes from everyone. You've, you've got all these guys and these leaders in their fancy robes. And now they're going to be doing bloody, uh, sweaty work. Punishing and killing Stephen. So they take off their robes and they basically hand them to Saul and say, Yeah, hold on to this for me while I go kill this Christian. And Saul gladly takes all their robes and, and, and takes care of them while they go and stone Stephen. That's the first thing we see of Saul in the book of Acts. Chapter 8 then tells us, and Saul approved of his execution. Very anti-Christian. In Acts chapter 9, we saw Saul again. We see Saul again. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So now he starts going to neighboring cities, and he gets gets letters from the Jewish leaders basically making it clear that he has the permission. If he finds Christians, he's going to arrest them and he's going to take them back to Jerusalem to be punished in one way or another. He is passionately opposed to Christianity. But then on his way to Damascus, what happens to Saul? The resurrected Jesus appears to him in a bright light, and knocks him to the ground and blinds him for a few days. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's what Jesus says. him. why are you persecuting me? Right? Jesus takes it very personally that Saul is persecuting Christians. Why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, verse 5, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Down in verse 19 of Acts chapter 9. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. This is talking about Saul. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? What's going on? The guy who came here to arrest Christians is suddenly preaching Christ. Verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength. And he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. That's Saul's radical conversion. Okay. That's his radical conversion. And then most of the rest of the book of Acts is taken up with his story. Acts thirteen to twenty eight is all about his ministry. He goes on three long missionary journeys. We're talking multiple years at a time here. Starts many churches. Gets persecuted like crazy for missionary work. He gets stoned. And, and the, the Lord, the, not, he gets stoned. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Not, not marijuana stoned. Rocks stoned. Okay. Uh, he gets beaten. He gets thrown in prison. He gets shipwrecked. Um, he goes through tons of persecution for the sake of Christ. He writes 13 letters that we have in our New Testament. He lives an incredible life for Jesus Christ. Okay. So who's this letter from? It's from Paul. From Paul. This, this, this man that the Lord's took hold of his life and turned it absolutely upside down. It's also from Timothy And who's Timothy? Well, about 15 years after Paul's conversion He met a young man named Timothy And he met him on his missionary travels In a town called Lystra Which is in modern day Turkey And Timothy was already a believer He was a young man Well spoken of by the Christians in the area and what we see in the book of Acts is that Paul invited him to accompany him on his missionary travels. And from that point onwards, Timothy was a faithful co-laborer of with Paul. And of course, towards the end of Paul's life, we actually have first and second Timothy written, where now Paul and Timothy are separated from each other, but Paul's writing to Timothy, who's pastoring a church. And he's giving him some insight in how to to set things in order and lead that church well. So that's who this letter is from. Paul with Timothy. And they describe themselves as servants of Christ Jesus. Right? That's how they introduce themselves, as servants of Christ Jesus. Now, if we think about how I introduced this sermon, I said, you know, there's in this world such a tendency towards thinking, well, if religion's got a place at all, it needs to be manageably sized. It needs to be something that's not all-consuming. Well, we're already seeing here in the book of Philippians that that's not the way that Christian life is understood by these men. Right? Jesus isn't a hobby of theirs. He is their Lord, and they are His servants. They live for Him. They live for him. Who is this letter written to? Well, Philippians tells us it's written to all the saints in Philippi. To all the saints in Philippi. Now, saints is a word most of us are going to know, but some of us might have a very incorrect understanding of it, right? Um, Roman Catholics... Various Orthodox churches, they'll talk about saints as being people who are, 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 are already dead, but people who we, we pray to in some sense, people with some level of, of, of power to bless and protect. Um, that's not a biblical understanding of saints. A biblical understanding of saints, this is, this is a word used to refer to any and all Christians. Okay. Any and all Christians, and what the word means is set apart ones, okay, holy ones. Okay, now, even there, you might think, okay, holy ones. Hang on, uh, you know, my life. Uh, I'm a Christian. I try to live for the Lord, but uh, you know, I can't describe my life as being holy in every way. Well, here's the main meaning of this word holy, okay is an illustration I'm sure some of you have heard uh, but it's a good one so I'll use it again is that is the illustration of of fine China okay so in general when I'm around the house here if I'm going to get something to drink I just get a plastic cup and and I get something to drink okay if some of you are coming over I'm going to offer you a glass okay um, I don't use that in everyday life because in everyday life I'm likely to break that. Okay. Now even more so, some people who are fancier people than we are <laughs> will maybe have some dishes that they only bring out for maybe Christmas or a wedding. It's most of the time it just stays locked away in a cupboard, except for special, special occasions. Okay. So. Those dishes, those plates, they're holy. They are set apart for a particular purpose. Okay? And this is the way that that the Bible talks about Christians. We are set apart for God. We're His. Our lives belong to Him. They're devoted to Him, committed to Him. Okay? We are His special people. Okay, his holy ones. Now again, seeing here the, the language here already in the first few verses of Philippians. This is not just something small added on to your life. It is an all encompassing thing. If you are a Christian, you belong to God. Your life is devoted to Him, it is set apart for Him, it is specially His. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippa. Okay, where is Philippa? Philippa was a major city in Macedonia, okay, which is modern-day Greece. And it was a Roman city. Even though it was in a Greek area, it was a Roman city, and, and Latin was the main language spoken. It was closely modeled after the city of Rome itself, and the people who lived there were very proud of its Roman culture and status, that this was an official Roman city, like it's like a it's like a part of Rome outside of Rome. Okay. And the church in Philippi was started by Paul, and Timothy was actually with him. This was actually, uh, if not the very first place Timothy went to with Paul, one of the very first places Timothy went to with Paul. And then it was Timothy, Paul, Luke, and I think maybe one or two others, and they're traveling together, looking to start new churches. And Paul's normal evangelistic approach would be that he would go to the synagogue, which is where Jewish people would worship. And as a traveling Jew, he would then be invited to teach from the Bible. And then he would show from the Old Testament that Jesus was, in fact, the promised Messiah. He was the Savior. But it seems like in Philippi there wasn't a synagogue. There weren't enough Jewish people there, or at least not enough Jewish men. There had to be at least ten Jewish men before a synagogue could be formed. So instead of his usual practice, Paul then thinks, Okay, where else am I going to find people who believe in the Old Testament Scriptures and and I get to use that same starting point with them. Okay, and he knew another place other than a synagogue where, where Jewish people would often gather on a Sabbath would be to go to a river and pray. So they go to the river and there's a few ladies gathered there for a prayer meeting. And that is where they, he shares the truth uh, with with this group of ladies and in particular a lady named Lydia comes to Saving Faith. And she's a businesswoman originally from another city. And she's actually quite wealthy. She sells clothing uh, dyed purple, which was a special thing in those days. And um, she comes to Saving Faith. Her family comes to Saving Faith. And it seems that the church begins to meet in her home. Okay, Then They continue going around Philippi, preaching, preaching, preaching. And there's a lady, a young lady, a young slave girl, who's following them around, basically telling everybody that they are servants of God. Okay? But this lady is actually demon-possessed, and her owners were using her. They were getting money from her because she was able to do fortune telling or at least, you know, maybe able to tell them enough things that even though she doesn't actually know the future, it's convincing to people, right? It's convincing to people. And they were making a lot of money from her. But then Paul drives the demon out of her. Okay? And the result is that her owners get really, really mad Take Paul and his, and his, and his friends to the authorities and they get beaten and thrown in prison. Okay. So now in prison we read this. This is in uh, Acts chapter 16. Verse 25. It says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They're in prison, they've just been beaten. Midnight, they praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison, prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Right? So now he knows he's in big trouble. Okay. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. We are all here. Okay. So rather than running away, even though their bonds have been loosed, he says, no, 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 don't, don't hurt yourself. We're here. And the jailer called for lights and he rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Obviously, your God has great power. He's freed you, released you, and you and your kindness have not left me to be executed by running away. And they said to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them The same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, him and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. So that's the beginning of the Philippian church. Lydia and her household, very possibly this slave girl who had been delivered from the demon. And now this jailer and his family. And in the years that followed, we see that Paul visited this church again on his next missionary journey. And we see that they faithfully supported him and his ministry through financial gifts on multiple occasions. And of course, continued prayer. In fact, uh, we mentioned Lydia was, was a wealthy woman, but most of this church was not wealthy. And we see uh, in 2 Corinthians, Paul's talking about what wonderful, generous givers they were, that even though they didn't have much themselves, they wanted the opportunity to give to the ministry, to give to the believers in Jerusalem who were experiencing a famine. Okay. So that's who the letter's from, it's who the letter's to. What about when it was written? What was the occasion of the letter? So this is now about 10 years down the road, 10 years after this church has started. Paul is in prison as a result of his ministry activity, and it's not clear to Paul when he'll be released, if ever. In fact, as we see later here in the book of Philippians, as we'll see in the next few weeks, execution even seemed like a very real possibility for Paul. And the Philippian church sent one of their members, a man named Epaphroditus, to go and visit Paul and encourage him and minister to him and also take him a financial gift because he had to provide for himself in prison. That was was the way this worked in the ancient world. Um, Most scholars believe that this particular imprisonment was in Rome. Okay? Which is a full 40 days journey, one way. Okay, so Epaphroditus takes his gift from the Philippian church and he travels for 40 days to go and deliver it to Paul. It was a huge investment of time, money and energy to make that trip. And what ended up happening, whether it was on the way or it was while Epaphroditus was actually there, is that Epaphroditus got very, very sick. Are very, very sick. And then the Philippian church heard that he was very, very sick. So now Paul's got this situation where he knows that the church is going to be worried about Epaphroditus because he's so sick. So Paul sends Epaphroditus back once he was well. He sends him back and said, okay, go back and you send this letter with you and you can at least put everyone at ease to know that you're fine. Okay that was the situation for this letter so even though the letter addresses several other things one of the things it primarily does is it just gives thanks to these philippians to uh, philippian christians for how they've cared for paul uh in this this difficult situation okay lastly the gospel greeting the gospel greeting verse 2 says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this in some ways is similar to typical greetings of the day in a letter. But it's Paul's own special greeting. And he's tweaked some of the, the more typical greetings of the day. He's tweaked them and he's made this, this particular greeting his own. And you'll, you'll see... Pretty much word for word this, or close to it, again and again in his letters. And it's basically a summary of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus. Because what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor, right? It is kindness that we do not, that we did not earn and that we do not deserve. Okay? And what is the, the, the Hebrew understanding of peace? The Hebrew understanding of peace is not just the absence of war, but it's the presence of of harmony, of blessedness, of flourishing, of everything going as it should, everything working together so that things are as they should be. When God extends grace to us in Jesus... He gives us the opportunity to be forgiven for our sins because of the death Jesus died on the cross to pay the price that we owed, the penalty we owed for our sin. That is grace. It's grace. We do not deserve it. What we deserve is the penalty. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. And we have the opportunity to be forgiven. To be welcomed into God's family. be adopted. Because of the perfect life that Jesus lived. And the death that he died. To pay the penalty we owed. That makes peace possible. right? So essentially here's what Paul wishes everybody. He says, I want you to know peace. And the way that you know peace is through the grace of God. The way to peace is through the grace of God. Peace with God because I'm no longer His enemy. And peace in the fullest sense of the Hebrew understanding of the word. Blessedness and flourishing. Certainly to some extent in this life, this peace that passes all understanding that Paul talks about, even later in the book of Philippians. Peace passes all understanding. But certainly what we will experience in eternity. An eternity without sin, without sadness, without sickness. An eternity where everything is as it should be. Now we've seen how the gospel turned Paul's life upside down. Absolutely upside down. We saw, we've saw. we seen that he and Timothy thought of themselves as servants of Christ Jesus. He's their Lord, he's their master, and their lives are all about him. We've seen how God opened the eyes of Lydia, how he overpowered uh, a demon to free a slave girl, how he miraculously brought about an earthquake and freed the prisoners to get the attention of the jailer and save him and his household. And we've seen that Christians are holy. They're set apart completely for Jesus. Okay. Christian life is an all-encompassing thing. Um, honestly, as you, as you study the book of Philippians, if you're reading it honestly, you'll be struck again and again and again by, wow. The commitment of Paul to Christ and the commitment that he expects of us to Christ, this, this is extreme. And yet what you'll also see is that it just makes so much sense. Because what we are talking about is the truth of how people can be saved, how people can be made right with God, how they can enjoy an eternity with Him. And what we see definitely a lot of in this book is exactly what we saw in that Philippian jail. Hectic circumstances, right? They've been beaten and they're there in prison, and yet they're singing. They're full of joy. Look forward to studying this book with you in the weeks to come and seeing that though the Christian life calls for our total commitment, it is well, well worth it. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we are thankful for your grace. We're thankful that you have made a way that we can be made right with you. And there is only one way, God. There is only one way. And we we have that treasure. We have that truth. And God, it certainly makes all the sense in the world that we should be compelled by your love for us. And we should be compelled by the preciousness of the truth of Jesus, the one and only Savior. And we should want to do everything we can to protect that truth and to take that truth to the world. God, I pray that we would not be daunted by just how radical a life you call us to live, but we would instead be compelled to, to to live that radical life. We help us, God, to see how precious this truth is, to see how glorious Jesus is, and to be rightly motivated to give our everything to let others know about Jesus and about what he's done to make us right with you. God, help us to know more and more in our lives the joy that we will see that the Apostle Paul experienced despite the most difficult of circumstances in life. God, help us to know this peace that passes all understanding. Help us to know this joy that is possible even as we face potential death or even as we're in circumstances like prison. A joy that transcends all life circumstances. God, all of this is possible as we know you and know your truth and know your promises. So use your word. Use your word as we study it in the weeks and months to come to bring all of this about in our lives. We pray this for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.